Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past. Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. And welcome, everyone, to the second episode of the Evoking History podcast. It is my pleasure to be joined today by Mr. Trey Weiscarver, who is a Ph.D. candidate in American history, specializing in the Civil War on the Western Front at the University of Texas at Austin. No, uh, no, no. Oh, Texas okay. A&M, man. Texas A&M. You'll get me. You, you'll get me in trouble, man. All right. Let me uh, redo that then. <laughs> Leave this in, though, so everybody knows how bad you are at this. I'm pretty really? terrible, so I might leave it in, but I, I might edit it out, too. Anyway, so yes, uh, I'm joined today by Trey Weiscarver, a Ph.D. candidate specializing in Civil War history, specifically the Western Front, from the University of Texas at A&M. How are you doing today, Trey? I'm good, man. It's uh, I, I never The Western Front makes it sound like uh, World War II or World War One. I. I never think of it as the Western Front, but... Yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of, and this is something that I want to talk about on this, is how that part of the country and the war kind of falls into the memory hole when people think about the Civil War. Well, it's it's an interesting, now I think of it in terms of military terminology, because I never really think, of in, in the Civil War, I think in terms of theaters. Sure. But in, in terms of, when when I think of fronts, I think of World War One, mm-hmm. and I think maybe part of the difference in terminology is that the fronts tended to be more static because of sort of the the rise of trench warfare. But I don't know. Maybe I'm sure that somebody has written about that and thought it more, way more thoroughly through than I have. But it's just, you know, I was just kind of thinking. <laughs> interesting phrasing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm. <laughs> And I'm coming at it as somebody who is not a military historian. So when thinking about the war and as somebody who, like yourself, growing up in Arkansas, I grew up in the western part of Kentucky. Um, So I think of that as a front. But that could be a holdover from language from World War One that I'm just inappropriately assigning to this war. Yeah, and this is one of those things that like it. (laughs) This is just. Pedantry because we enjoy pedantry as a. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. It's just we're discussing it for the sake of discussing it. That's that's very true. Um, and one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is because you have been inspirational to me in starting this podcast. For those of you who don't know, Trey hosts his own podcast 
which was the Outlaw History Podcast. I don't know if you're thinking of rebranding that because of some whatnot no, that we'll get into. No, the, uh, that is absolutely forever and always going to remain the Outlaw History Podcast. Excellent. Um, I highly recommend you go check that out if you haven't already, which if you're listening to this, you probably already have. And, you know, I met Trey at a SHA, Southern Historical Association, conference way back in 2015, I think it was, maybe at the beginning of 2016. Yeah, it was in, it was in 2015. It was in Little Rock. Yes. And, you know, we bonded not only over our love of history, but our love of wrestling. For those of you who don't know, he is my brother of instruction, and we do a wrestling podcast together. Check that out as well. And the Oh My God cast, an ECW retrospect. Exactly. And Trey is just an all-around great guy and one of the most knowledgeable people on the Civil War that I've ever encountered. So I wanted to have him on. Not only because he was such an inspiration, but because he is an expert in his field. And it is the 800-pound gorilla in the room when talking about U.S. history. That time period, for obvious reasons, sucks in a lot of attention and a lot of misinformation in the public sphere. And I want to help combat that, if at all possible. So what better way than to have an expert on? Yeah, man, it's funny because, and by the way, thanks for the the effusive job that you did of, of putting me over there. I was uh, was over here blushing like a schoolgirl the whole time. Uh, it's funny because I never intended on being a the lost cause guy. It happened uh, kind of by accident, mm-hmm. and it's funny because there's a long story behind this. That I knew vaguely, like, I knew what the Lost Cause was just by virtue of having obsessively read about the American Civil War from the time that I was nine years old. It's it's a big part of my biography. It was like, it, it was the way that I started my, my grad school uh, cover letters. It was in my TEDx that the, the pivotal moment in my young life when I picked up a biography of Abraham Lincoln and just became so fascinated about the Civil War. So I knew that the Lost Cause was a thing, and I knew it was wrong, and I had a I had a general understanding of why. When I got to – when I went into uh, my master's program at the University of Mississippi, which um, I don't always have great things to say about my time there overall, but it I just – I have to appreciate that it's like it was they were a school that gave me an opportunity and it was because I was a a, a promising Civil War scholar that I did. I did uh, get to do a a funded master's degree there. So overall, I I am appreciative of that. But uh, most of the people in that department who dealt with the Civil War studied uh, memory and just I was the one person in the department who had a. particular interest in military history i was the only person grad student or faculty who you could call a military historian and it ended up me not feeling like i was in the place that i needed to be and i kind of developed this chip on my shoulder where i just i didn't want to read about memory because it it was the source of my my angst about all this it wasn't until i got into my phd program at texas a&m um, I took a couple of seminars on – they were ostensibly on the southwest borderlands, but the professor that I had, uh, Dr. Walter Banger, who's amazing, he was really big on different types of borders and all the different types of borders that there are. And I think it was him exposing me to the idea of 
memory as a border that I really started to appreciate it and get interested in it and ended up, you know, to the point that it's been just a big part of what I study in general. But what really happened was when it came time, when I had the idea to do the TEDx and it was just because of the way that I had observed the state of public discourse on the civil war, because this has been my time in graduate school studying the civil war has coincided with these huge ongoing national debates about civil war monuments and Confederate idolization. Yeah. And I ended up, I just had the idea to do the TEDx where I wanted to show through a very simple use of primary sources that the basic argument underlying the lost cause is demonstrably false. And that has just ended up being, it kind of got away from me to the point that I'm this recognized authority on the lost cause, even though I don't really consider myself that because it's still, it's not what I research. Like it's not what, you know, I'm not, I'm not dissertating about the lost cause. I'm dissertating about, there has been a little bit of a different kind of civil war memory that has crept into my dissertation, but we can get to that later. But, and just through the whole, the whole Twitter personality, and I have a nasty habit of not being able to keep my mouth shut. And I say that way, (laughs) (laughs) I say things that I feel need to be said. And, um, it resonates with people because, you know, there are a lot of people like me and like you, who we are Southerners and we, Mm -hmm. we identify as such. And there are things about the South that we love, but we also, you know, we think that it would be better for everyone involved if we could do something about that 800 pound gorilla in the room right next to the bus accident. Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, uh, when I say that you are an expert on the lost cause, I realize that it's not something that you're focusing your dissertation on. But as a lifelong Southerner, myself as well, we are often called to talk on that because we have such experience for it. And it still such has a resonance. Um, I can't remember. and You could, probably will. But uh, there is a strand of historiography in, that states that the South lost the war but won the peace. And it is through this recognition and this tacit acceptance, you know, the Shelby footification, if you will, of <laughs> Civil War memory in that the lost cause and a lot of the tropes of that that are put out there are taught in schools right alongside slavery as being the the real cause for the war. Yeah, it, there's just so much there that the Shelby footification is very well phrased and it's funny because every time every time Shelby Foote gets in the news I end up getting attention yeah I mean I would call it the Edward A. Pollard vacation because that's (laughs) what it actually ought to be but I think Shelby Foote because of his prominence in the Ken Burns' documentary is really much more associated with it in popular culture you know I always confuse E.A. Pollard with E.A. Porter (laughs) It okay. was uh, it was um, 
Longstreet's chief of artillery. See, I didn't Alexander. even know that. So, you know, there you go. I'm learning something already. It's, it's, it's because he also had a, a Civil War memoir and, <laughs> you know, did his little bit for the Lost Cause. And it's just funny that. So, yeah, I'll, I always confuse those two. Yeah. Well, let's get into what you actually are dissertating on and what you actually want to focus and and build upon as opposed to what you have been called into public service doing. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So I study the civil war in Arkansas, broadly speaking, and I've been, my focus has gotten more and more complicated to the point that like now I can just say it basically it's on how the civil war ruined Arkansas and that has developed from the time when I was an undergraduate at the University of Arkansas at Monticello. Uh, my, uh, I had a professor there named uh, Bill Shea, who's an expert on the Civil War in Arkansas. He co-authored a book on Pea Ridge with Earl Hess. He wrote a book on the Prairie Grove campaign, mm-hmm. wrote, uh, wrote a book on Vicksburg with uh, Terry Winchell, who was the park historian at, at Vicksburg for years and years. And it was through him that I started to get interested in the war in Arkansas. So uh, basically by like, by my junior year of undergrad, I had a vague idea the civil war in Arkansas. And it's just been, it's just been that topic developing and evolving ever since I did, uh, when I did my master's research, I focused on the uh, basically the freedmen camps around Helena and uh, the uh, genesis of free labor in the Arkansas Delta. Uh, and that master's research ended up not really going anywhere for a, a whole other mess of reasons. But just eventually it became... So I, I guess the best way to tell this is to sort of g- give the skeleton of the story. Uh, yeah, sure, please. Arkansas, Arkansas in 1861 is just this backwoods, like you were. Arkansas might as well have been off the end of the earth. And the geography of Arkansas, the only place that you can really grow cotton like large scale is in the Delta, you know, the area toward the uh, Mississippi River. And some like Southwest Arkansas, there's a different kind of uh, a different strand of cotton that grows there. But the rest of Arkansas is mountains, which as you, you see the same thing in studies of like Eastern Tennessee or uh, North Carolina, any kind of mountainous areas, not conducive to slave agriculture and tend to be the places that there's the most resistance to the Confederacy. People right. in western Arkansas were more concerned about having the federal government to protect them from uh, Native American raids from Indian Territory. The, the, they weren't as concerned about, you know, having a government to protect the the slaveholder slaves in the Delta. Mm-hmm. So Arkansas, you know, was kind of divided to begin with. And, you know, Fort Sumter happened and you get the sort of brief artificial unity of the South. Arkansas joins the Confederacy, but there's still a substantial unionist minority. And like after, uh, especially after 
the Conscription Act in 1862, there's increasing resistance to the Confederacy in Arkansas, and the combination of the people of Arkansas feeling like the Confederate national government was no longer uh, protecting them and the Confederate military's inability to defend Arkansas because by the beginning of 1863, uh, there's not really a... The Confederates don't really have the ability to undertake serious offensive operations in Arkansas. And they... And uh, my friends who study the Battle of Helena in mid-1863 will, will chide me for that. But realistically, Confederate Arkansas was done after uh, the defeat at Prairie Grove in December 1862 and the capture of Arkansas Post in January of 1863. So there's no Confederacy in large parts of Arkansas, but there's also no Union authority because they don't have the manpower in the Trans-Mississippi to garrison all these towns so north of the arkansas river it's more or less just anarchy it's Mm -hmm. uh whoever the the strongest guerrilla band in the area is that's who has the power and it's something that i don't think anybody fully understands and it's something that i don't fully understand it's something that i hope to finally have the beginnings of an understanding of by the time i finish this dissertation the degree to which society broke down in Arkansas in the last two years of the civil war. And that's what my dissertation research is aimed at figuring out and how that happened, why it happened and, and what resulted. Sounds good. Um, there's a couple of questions that I want to ask about that. And so going back to, to something you said earlier about, you know, the contested loyalties in these regions and you brought up East Tennessee. And I think that, that is a phenomenal um, example as a Kentucky, and I also want to talk about how it's a very similar situation. West Kentucky, which is by the Mississippi River, or you know, along the Ohio in between the Cumberland and Tennessee, that would be the cotton growing regions there. And they attempted to secede and join the Confederacy. As a matter of fact, Bowling Green, uh, one of the larger cities in that region, was named the Confederate capital although the Confederate government was in absentia and traveling with the Tennessee Army. Have um, you read, uh, I think her name was uh, Ann Marshall, her book, Creating a Confederate Kentucky? I have not. I need to. Oh, man, you, you got to when you get the chance. But, yeah, go ahead. Um, and, you know, this kind of plays into the memory thing, because I can remember, like, my w- going with my grandfather to, like, Fort Donaldson and and all these places along the Mississippi about the Mississippi campaign uh, from Grant's invasion of Paducah, which is still what it's called, you know, and all that. So that's kind of how I conceive the Western theater. I'll use that terminology instead of front going forward. Even though I'm a 20th century historian, there's a lot of – and, you know, I have to deal with the Civil War and about lost cause – memory and all that stuff i my knowledge of specifically the western theater is much more colored by popular culture you know the the stories of the gorillas the frank and jesse james stories after the war the outlaw josie wales movies and stuff like that you know can you can you speak to that how that how much reality there is in that or how much of that is just wild hollywood speculation well it's certainly based uh, in fact, that the the James Gang is 
in a way, a descendant of uh, William Quantrill's Confederate guerrillas during the Civil mm-hmm. War. Here's the thing about that part of the country, that Missouri, Kansas border. I would argue that there is a prolonged conflict there that exists partially concurrently with the Civil War, but that goes on from uh, 1854 to... sure. I guess sometime, sometime in the 1870s. I am not, I am not an expert on what happens with, uh, with the James Gang and those kind of people after the Civil War. Uh, I, I, I know a lot more about bleeding Kansas and, of course, about the Civil War years. But I think that there is a uh, continuity of the violence that happens in that area over the course of that 20 or so years. Right. Uh, well, it's just when you were talking about guerrilla fighting in the Arkansas region, that's what brought that to mind is yeah. the, the association of Quantrell and the Raiders in the Kansas, Missouri borderlands. Um, and I, I, I do think and I wonder, and this is me going completely into left field. So if I'm being an idiot, please tell me, <laughs> is that if one of the reasons that the Western theater has kind of fallen into that memory hole is because of the violence, not only of reconstruction in the South, but also the then project of empire into expanding into the Indian territories uh, right after the end of the war. Yeah. I wonder, sorry, I was just thinking about um, sort of the, the basis of me thinking about the, the level of violence comes from a, uh, an article that uh, my mentor Bill Shea wrote and uh, he, he wrote it for the Sesquicentennial, Centennial. So mm-hmm. 2010 or, or 2011 or whenever it was the memory block. He suggests that the people of the trans Mississippi intentionally disremembered the scale of violence and privation that they lived under during the civil war, that it was, that it was too much to pass on to another generation. Kind of like the same way that, you know, people who fled, uh, fled bad situations elsewhere in the world to come to the United States, mm-hmm. maybe they would, you know, like if, if, if you, if you grew up uh, in Vietnam during that period and, and you and your children came to America, that maybe you wouldn't want to pass that level of pain onto them. That's what, that's what I think, uh, we're getting at with the just the level of both material and emotional devastation right in civil war arkansas Hmm. sorry was there a uh there was a question about empire spreading west in there too that if you want it was was, yeah we can definitely talk about that we then engage in the plain wars and we see actually uh you know even though the union army draws down and parts of the confederate army are then integrated back into the national army out west on that frontier that they're engaged in these large scale ongoing you know longer than the civil war campaigns against the native tribes out west on the plains sorry could could you uh repeat what you were asking me there yeah it was kind of rambling so i was just wondering you know if what your thoughts are on the fact that so soon relatively speaking after the end of the civil war that we are then plunging into the plains wars and we we kind of see that in some ways reconciling the two armed forces though even though the union army is 
reduced dramatically in size after the end of the Civil War, but there are elements of the Confederate Army that are reincorporated into the National Army in the Plains Wars. Yeah, uh, uh, galvanized Yankees was was the term. The Confederates that were uh, captured and uh, instead of they were given the option instead of you know rotting in uh, in prison that they would uh, join the the U.S. Army and go to uh, Minnesota or to the Plains to fight Native Americans. And, um, you know, I am not sure that I have ever thought of the Plains Wars from that angle. I think that I think that after preserving the Union, the U.S. government's number one priority was, uh, how should I say, my uh, I, I know what the, the term that our friend Michael Carter would use. And I, I don't know if he yeah. I don't know if I want to use the the G word as a verb here, especially, but I think that the U.S. government's number one priority after preserving the Union was to, shall we say, uh, clear the West for white settlement. That's a a, a safe euphemism, I think, for the G word in this case. Um, Yeah, definitely so. Because, I mean, you know, we can argue whether it's – well, genocide by policy or genocide by action, you know, but that's neither here nor there for our discussion. It can be, though. I mean, we it can be. About I mean, it. Don't yeah. stop us. It's your podcast. Um, I will go where you want to go, my friend. Uh, man, um, I, I don't know what to say to that other than <laughs> <laughs> – I don't know. It sounds like this man that – at uh, – that wasn't right. What we did to to indigenous peoples that was that was all kinds of messed up, and we ought to be ashamed of ourselves for it. And we really need to think of a way to somehow begin to look like we're thinking about making amends, because that's what Europeans did to indigenous Americans is high on the list of most horrible things that one group of humans have ever done to another group of humans. Uh, without there's, a doubt. There's my hot take for the podcast there, buddy. <laughs> That'll be the blurb. We did incredibly bad things, and we should be sorry for them, but as is often the case in American history, we are not. I do, though. I feel so bad about it. You ever just you ever just think about history and just feel bad for a while? Just Yeah, uh, you know, I, it's... And especially doing the kind of history I do, which I don't know that it, my listeners really know, I do a lot of with political violence, and I you know, have kind of landed in the early 20th century, but it, it has ranged from studies of various genocidal campaigns and what little, if to nothing, to being tacitly um, supportive to outright supportive of these campaigns the U.S. government has done and terrorism loosely defined and all these other things. So, yeah, there's a lot of times, man, at the end of the day. I mean, I'm not going to cape up and say that I, I deserve something special for studying what I do because I chose this path. And it's not like I'm a, a, a full-on genocide scholar or somebody who spends all my time on the Holocaust. So, I mean, there are things that I look at that aren't that bad. <laughs> I'm I'm an American white man who studies the 19th century in America when American white men did just some of the worst shit that they ever did. So 
I uh, I feel bad a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, I do too. And it, so much of it is because yeah, no, I grew up on the original route of the Trail of Tears. Yeah. So every day, you know, I saw those markers, and when I was young, I didn't think anything about it. But as I become more historically conscious, you know, is that what we need to do, man? Is that, do we need to? Okay, you remember? You're old enough to remember. You're, you're older than I am, so you're definitely. I am old, old so yes. Um, the the pollution commercial with the crying Native American man. Uh-huh. And it just kind of made you feel. But maybe we need to bring that back large scale just to. And here's the thing. And we can talk. Oh, God. You want to talk about the 1619 project and all the shit that it's getting? Uh, I think we oh, ought to. Oh, my God. The uh, just historians that I respect just coming out of the woodwork to go, hey, don't fuck with my my white supremacist happy memory of american history man i uh gotta say i have never been so disappointed in, in james mcpherson yeah he's a great author and his work is so good but i was disappointed by that too i was actually thankful that only five at least the last time i looked a scholar signed that letter that was sent in to the new york times yeah no it was gordon wood james McPherson. hardly surprising was it, was it sean willens <laughs> yes I was a little surprised about Sean Willis, too. I was, Gordon too. Wood didn't surprise me. No, Gordon yeah, Wood Gordon Wood was like, whatever. Yeah, I don't think anybody that he, ever read, I don't think anybody's ever read Gordon Wood was surprised. Yeah, considering the screed he went on about the William and Mary Quarterly daring to have indigenous and women voices in it, it's like, ah. <laughs> oh, man. Here's the thing, and it bothers me a lot, is that even though they were great progressive historical minds in their day, that... They are, even that they're in their twilight years, they are still going down swinging to defend white nationalist narratives of American history. And I'm I'm really disappointed in that. So yeah. what were we talking about before I went off on that tirade? Uh, I had asked a question about uh, the Western theater um, disappearing from memory because of the <laughs> Plains campaigns. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe that was maybe that was more interesting. And maybe, maybe uh, you know, there probably is something to that. That all the attention passed to the plane. Here's the other thing: uh, the Union cause in the in the Trans Mississippi during the war was a victim of its own success. Okay. That by the Union victory at Pea Ridge in March 1862, like, the war in Arkansas was decided, really and truly. And after that, the Union, the U.S. government never devoted, like, uh, other than the Red River campaign in 1864, which is was just a whole different fucking mess that the U.S. never devoted uh, significant resources west of the Mississippi again on purpose. That's my take on why nothing west of the Mississippi gets much attention after the Union victory at Pea Ridge. Okay. Well, I mean, and I don't know, and you might be able to know these figures off the top of your head, but I, I get the sense that uh, so many of those who served probably did serve in the Eastern Theater, and that that is where a lot of, after the war, when the the various organizations would get together to preserve the memory and preserve battlefields and stuff, it was almost all on that theater as opposed to the Western. Okay, well, here's the thing. I think that more soldiers on both sides served in the Western Theater 
okay. than the Eastern Theater, just in terms of number of, numbers of men involved overall. Because remember, you got multiple armies mm-hmm. in in the West operating throughout the war. But here's the thing, just with the way that the war moved, you had Union soldiers who fought at Pea Ridge, marched through Arkansas to Helena, and then instead of remaining in Arkansas to fight, they ended up taking Vicksburg. And then they ended up in, uh, for what, lack of a better term, I, I like to call Army Group Sherman. The, uh, yeah. The, the Army of the Tennessee, the Army of the Cumberland, and what, the Army of the Ohio, I think? That sounds right. That those men, I remember a uh, quote from, uh, I think it was uh, Union soldiers getting ready to attack uh, somewhere in the, the, the Chattanooga campaign that veterans of Pea Ridge saying, this is going to be worse than Pea Ridge. We're going to catch hell in them woods. Mm-hmm. That they, that Pea Ridge, and that's why to this day, Civil War Arkansas. What do you know? You know about Pea Ridge. There's a national, there's a national park at Pea Ridge, not a national park at Prairie Grove. Prairie Grove is a state park. Okay. And it's the second most important Civil War battle in Arkansas. And the re- so the reason that Pea Ridge is remembered while the rest of the war in the in uh, the Trans-Mississippi is not, is because the Union soldiers that fought at Pea Ridge ended up fighting in the larger Western War that went from... And that's why, that's why when I teach the Civil War, and I do, my, I do my overview of the military campaigns, I show, you basically start at three different points. And uh, start at Springfield, Missouri, Cairo, Illinois, and oh, wherever Buell would have started from. And draw lines through the Confederacy to Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. The miles that those Western men traveled while the armies in the East mostly traveled within the same 100-mile corridor for, for four years. And look look, look at where those forces are at the end of the war. And I, I have heard and I, I see it. I agree that uh, if the war had gone on another three weeks, Sherman could have taken Richmond from the South. <laughs> Can I give you a little local flavor? Yeah. It's Cairo, Illinois. Cairo, Illinois. That's right. I should know that. Yeah. yeah I have a, uh, I actually have a little model of, uh, the USS Cairo. That, have you ever been to Vicksburg to the, to the, uh, battlefield I have, park? I have been to Vicksburg. I have not been to the battlefield park. Well, they have the actual USS Cairo. Oh, cool. That was, it was the first warship ever to be sunk by a mine. Huh. And it was sunk on the Osley River during the Vicksburg campaign. It's raised and it's it's placed in the park. And yeah, that's that's why I have a I have a little brass model of the uh, the uh, gunboat, the USS Cairo. Well, next time I'm down Vicksburg Way, I'll have to uh, stop in there and see that. Absolutely, man. It's uh, it's you know, it's really cool. Like you can actually get and get out and walk around a civil war gunboat. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of, again, somewhat out of left field, but I know you led some stuff at Gettysburg one summer. Would you like to talk about that? I didn't lead. I was a, oh, uh, I was a participant. Okay. Uh, yeah. 2016. I was very fortunate. I got to attend uh, the very last 
West Point Summer Seminar in Military History. Awesome. And uh, so I got to spend a week at West Point studying the way that they teach military history in the West Point History Department. And then uh, I got to spend a week doing uh, – we did – we went to Harper's Ferry, and then we did a staff ride at uh, South Mountain, and we did a staff ride at Antietam, and we did a staff ride at Gettysburg. Very cool. I remember seeing some of the, the pictures of you from Gettysburg, and that's what really, made had, me uh, think of that. Had one day off the entire uh, two-week period, and uh, me and some of the other fellows uh, drove up from West Point to Saratoga to go to the, uh, the, the Saratoga battlefield. Awesome. As military historians should. So where do you want to go next, my friend? Do you want to talk some more about your dissertation, or do you want to transition to some of the other projects that you have? Man, I'm uh, you know, I, 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 you got you got me in a headlock. Call a spot. We'll uh, <laughs> well, well, we'll run a high spot. You mentioned before how you teach the Civil War, and I would like to hear a little bit more about that. All right. Well. So when I say the way I teach the Civil War, it's uh, something that I've had occasion to do uh, several times as a TA is, uh, you know, to be invited to teach essentially a class on uh, this is the only way that these students are going to get the military history of the Civil War. Right. So um, I have a Civil War lecture that I can do in uh, 50 minutes or you know, 70 minutes or whatever it calls for that. I just do an overview of who went where and fought who, when, what happened. And you know what, in my experience, the students love that and want to hear that because it's interesting. And it's about, you know, interesting things that happen. Say what you will about warfare and how terrible it is, but it is interesting. No, uh, one of the best history professors that I ever had and, who didn't even have his doctorate, but he was, had a master's and had served as a journalist for years. And he was always like blood and sex, sex and violence. Yep. If you can incorporate those into your class in a meaningful way, you will have your students' attention because they always – people gravitate to those. And it's sad but true. I have found that in the own lect- my own lecturing that I do about various things – that that is usually the parts that that stick with people. So, yeah, but as far as teaching the Civil War, so as you know, I am for the very first time teaching my own U.S. history classes this semester. So, you know, I am I am actively engaged in thinking about how not only am I going to teach the Civil War, how am I going to teach an entire period of U.S. history? Are you and, doing the entire U.S. history in one class, or is it a split? I'm doing uh, to 1877. Okay. Okay. Because we do it here from pre-first contact to the Trump administration, if you can get that far. How? how? <laughs> that is a brilliant question, my friend. Wow. You, you basically um, – the furthest that we I've gotten, and I've only worked on that with two professors, and I'm sure every professor has their own way that they structure it because how can you not – um, we got to Reagan, but, you know, there is a lot that you have to cut out and choose wisely as about how much time you're going to spend on things. Um, and I can hear the people who have to do Plato to NATO going, crime, you're river Americanists, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Um, yeah, but it, it's just, okay, so the, the one time I did it was somebody who's, uh, research focuses almost exclusively on 
economic history during the revolution. So we spent a lot of time on the revolution, went through the Civil War pretty well, touched on Reconstruction, and then just kind of jumped through the 20th century. It's like, okay, Reconstruction ends, we do some stuff, World War II. Um, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> the other guy, his focus is Native American history. So we did first, we started with some pre-Columbian stuff, first contacts, a lot of stuff during the, the Plains time period, and then yeah, kind of skimmed through World War One and World War Two and got See, into modern it, stuff. Believe it or not, and I, and I don't think a lot of people know this about me. Um, one of my comps fields essentially was Native American history. It's not my research at all, but it's uh, you know it, it was a comps field, so like I, I, I yeah. know it, I know it really well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I am I am most excited to teach uh, early Native American contacts with Europeans is I think is the the number one thing that I'm excited to teach and the different ways in which uh, the English, the Spanish, and the French uh, structured their interactions with indigenous Americans. Well, that's one of the brilliant things I think he did because he, he didn't teach it in the way that it's, you know, the English colonies looking westward. He touched yeah. on like the Russian stuff and the, of course the Spanish and the French and everything. And, uh, and I was, I, could t- I, I was so happy that when I looked at uh, the, the textbook that, that I have to teach out of that they actually do, they actually have like, you know, as much focus as you're going to get on Native Americans, that they actually do differentiate uh, the English experience, the French experience, and the Spanish experience. Yeah, totally. And there's a lot of good resources out there. Now we didn't actually use a textbook in the classes that I've done. We've used American Yop, which I think is a great supplement, and there's the benefit of it doesn't cost anything for the students to to buy. Which yeah, you see, know, I'm uh, I'm. Uh, at the community college that I'm teaching at, it was, Hey, you can pick between these two. And I said, well, I'm going to pick this one. Cause I've heard of the author. Yeah, totally. So, um, but yeah, basically I've, in, in my mind, uh, I, I want to spend like a lot of time on native Americans and a lot of time in the civil war and reconstruction. And then, Oh God, well, how am I going to fit in all of this other stuff? So I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to pick and choose. Yeah. And I think that that, that is the unfortunate nature. Um, but I do like the fact that it, at least it's a dual sequence class so that you have some more time to breathe on all that stuff. Cause I mean, you know, I, I've been in classrooms, not as a professor or a TA, but I've been in classrooms where it's like, well, okay. And you know, we get to the end of it and the civil war happened and that's all that's really said. I and mean, you spend a little bit of time on bleeding Kansas and the sectional crisis. Fort Sumter happens. That is the end of the class. Then you pick up the next time and the war is over. Yay. You already might spend a little bit of time on the Emancipation Proclamation, but you do don't spend very much time on the Civil War itself at all. That's it. Just breaks my heart, man. Just breaks my heart. Well, I mean, uh, I guess. I mean, I get it. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make your sacrifices. You gotta. But, but to me, the problem, and I, okay, I I am not, I am not gonna judge any faculty members the way that they the things that they pick to, to emphasize and, and whatnot. But the problem is that it speaks to the disdain that academic institutions show for history. And I think that that is a big, big problem. 
because ignorance of history. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to use my friend, my friend Kate Dahl's, uh, 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 Kate Dahlstrand's word because I'm reading a dissertation. The, the historical illiteracy. Yes. That results from a lack of interest in or a lack of emphasis on history education has resulted in very irresponsible citizens. Uh, hence, okay, so we, I, I'm sure you, like me, d- did your time as a child obsessively reading about the Founding Fathers and their vision of America. And yeah, you know that they place a very high emphasis on civic responsibility. Yeah. And the idea of a responsible citizen. And when I think of how irresponsible the average American citizen is with their civic responsibilities, I feel <laughs> I think I tweeted the other day, uh, if the founding fathers showed the disdain, like could see the disdain that we show their vision of responsible citizens, they would kick us all in the balls and install a monarchy. <laughs> well, some of them were, would have been more down with that install, like a pseudo monarchy anyway, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, but they also wouldn't recognize our body politic either. They'd be like, you let them vote, so kind of fuck them. <laughs> you know, that's true, but I kind of feel like. Like, I can't. Never mind. I kind of feel like if you got a time machine and like Bill and Ted back to George Washington and explained <laughs> like, okay, you got to accept this that you're not going to like, just get it over with. If we can get past that, I feel like, I feel like some of those guys could still have some insightful things to say. Uh, if you can just, you know, not, you know, if you can get them to not be racist and sexist for like 12 minutes, you could probably get some really good insight out of them still. Probably, but I, man, 12 minutes might be too much for some of them. I, I think Jefferson could put on a, a, uh, a good pretend to not be racist or sexist for 12 minutes, but I think his eyeball would be twitching. So. See, I no, I, I think Jefferson was, was really good at pretending to be a better person than he was, so I think... Uh, <laughs> That's true. I, I think I think he could play along quite a bit. Yeah, and you know, not to to get all Balin and Wood, but I mean, you know, they did come up with ideas that were bigger than them, that were greater than they at least would apply them. Let me put it that way. Right. It, so they uh, we venerate them for a reason. I think we overvenerate them, and I think that that is a large part of the problem that we have. And kind of going that, that reminds me. That, you know, maybe not so much at the collegiate level, but in the, in the secondary level where you're having to do a state run. Oh, I think that, that they understood their own fallibility better than maybe the average American does in retrospect. Well, without a doubt, I would like, definitely I, agree with that. I, I do think that, like, maybe Thomas Jefferson was self-aware that, like, maybe he's kind of a piece of shit, but he kind of in looking at, you know, long-term, long-term changes, he, he, he had some ideas that could be applied more widely than he in life would have favored applying them. Does that yes, make sense? It does. Cause I, I agree with you. I think he could envision all the trouble that American policies, especially the racial policies and slavery were leading the country to. He just couldn't make himself break away from it. 
This he is did. the most nuanced analysis of the founding fathers that you're going to get by two middle-aged white guys anywhere on the internet. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I, I don't want to make this a thing, but I've always sort of thought about the the whole Thomas Jefferson Sally Hemings thing. It's really like it's it's objectively rape. Yes. And I feel like a lot of people don't understand that. The idea like the idea that a slave can consent is absurd because and the, the thing that I always think of that's sort of one of my metrics of understanding rape uh, is that if you do not have the capacity to say no, you do not have the capacity to say less. So to, I'm sorry, to say yes. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I weirdly think about this case a lot in relation to just the nature of, of consent and sexual assault that. A, a sexual relationship with a slave is sort of inherently non-consensual. Without a doubt. I do think that, and I, there has been some scholarship on this, that the enslaved people did everything they could to, you know, not to get too academic and talk about agency and all that, but to exert what power they could and to right. leverage these relationships to at least attempt to earn better accommodations, not necessarily for themselves, but any children that were had because of these rapes. And those kind of things. Well, but I'm out of my depth with all that because that is not what I research. And, and yeah, uh, I mean, let's uh, l- l- let's end on a happier note. Can we? So let's yeah. talk about something nicer for a few minutes, <laughs> so, so we don't end on the on the on the rape. Note. Yeah, how terrible our founding fathers actually were as people. Yeah, I'm um, sure. So what have you got? That's a uh, the high note. Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I got these classes I'm getting ready to teach, working on... Uh, I'm excited about that for you. I think you're really going to love that, and I'm sure your students are going to get a hell of an education. I'm going to uh, get my, my dissertation proposal defended and all that good stuff here very shortly. Just uh, filled out the paperwork uh, tonight. Uh, just, had, just had Russell Kingdom, so that was... Uh, still got that Russell Kingdom hangover. Okay, um, so I'm just going to go ahead and say that this might be the end of necessarily the history portion of this. The rest of this will probably just be me and Trey nerding out about wrestling like we like to do, at least for a li- little bit. So yeah, what well, did you think of Wrestle Kingdom? Oh, man, uh, two of the best super cards back to back. Like the the hangover level is like the last weekend of G1 level, just because yeah. you had these two gigantic shows. Like I've never. The uh, on night one, the Will Ospreay Hiromu Takahashi match and the Kazuchika Okada Kota Ibushi match, hands down two of the greatest matches I have ever seen, and my mind was so blown. And then uh, the second night just had some really great stuff, capped off by a great Okada Naito main event with, you know, I'm not like the biggest Naito fan, and I'm pretty. I'm pretty solidly just in terms of, of pure fanboyism. I'm an Okada guy, but I knew I understood that this was Naito's story. That this is the culmination of that uh, six-year story going back to when Naito lost to Okada in the semi-main event of the Tokyo Dome back in 2014, losing again in the main event two years ago. That this whole double domes and the double gold dash and him being out of IWGB title contention. But he had this Intercontinental title that originally he just disdained. You remember his first yep. Intercontinental title reign? He dragged it around and just threw it and broke it and just wanted nothing to do with the Intercontinental title. But over time, he realized that 
this this white belt is my ticket to the the double gold dash is my chance to become IWGP heavyweight champion again. And he used that Intercontinental Championship to get to finally get his crowning achievement of winning the IWGP heavyweight title at the Tokyo Dome. And it's other than the ongoing Kota Ibushi uh, story, the Tetsuya Naito story is my favorite thing that Gato has ever booked. That's saying something because Gato is a hell of a booker. And I, and I don't know where you come down on this, but I actually liked the Kenta run-in after. Because it sets up what will, should be a, a good, I don't know if it'll be a series, but at least a good match. And it's not it's somebody who's a credible threat, but not anybody that you feel like, oh, Nigel's really in danger of losing. Right. And which, I felt, which might mean that Gato puts the belt on him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think I might have been more annoyed in the moment if I had seen it live. But like this, the, okay, so the first night I watched live, the second night I had streaming problems. Uh, you know, there were live problems with the English feed. And I just got so annoyed with the loading problems. I was like, fuck it, I'm going to bed. I'll watch it tomorrow. So I did. And so, but I knew vaguely. The only things that I didn't uh, spoil were uh, er, were uh, the the Jay White Kota Ibushi match and the Jericho Tanahashi match, which like the the only thing that I had any doubt about was the Jericho Tanahashi match. But I really so I knew vaguely that Naito won and something happened with Kenta, so I was prepared for it. And then, but seeing the way Kenta has played it off, you know, on Twitter and at New Year Dash. I, I love it. I think it's great. And I think Kenta is a fantastic heel. And uh, I'm like I said, I'm not the biggest Naito fan. Like he's not one of my favorite new Japan guys or anything, but like, I am more excited for this match with Kenta than I have been with any, for any Naito match in a while because that angle was so great. And Kenta's such a strong heel. It got exactly the reaction that it needed to get. I mean, it wasn't go away heat. It was just hot, hot heat. And I think it was Trevor Dame on Twitter who tweeted this out, that Ghetto is not a Japanese wrestling booker. He is booking territories wrestling with the best talent in the world. Right. So I think about that a lot because uh, Ghetto, like he's been on record as saying like he – you know, he grew up watching and learning booking from Southern Territory Wrestling. Yeah. And when I think about, okay, I'm trying to think of who would have been booking New Japan when I first started watching. It was, it was whoever became Booker like after Choshu left in 2003, and I can't think of, but like New Japan was booked on this pattern for the first decade of the 2000s, and then Gato came in, and it's it became an entirely different pattern. And if you look at it, it is this weird mixture of new Japan booking and Southern territory wrestling. And yeah. it's just fascinating. And it's like, I think Gato is a genius. He's a uh, first ballot wrestling observer hall of famer this year. And 100% deserves it because I think just, and I'm more convinced than ever after the culmination of the Naito story that he's the greatest booker of all time. The fact that he has been he has been booking for when did he first become booker in New Japan? Like it's been about a decade, and so, it's just the early 2010s. I don't know exactly when it was, but yeah. And he hasn't burned out after a decade, and he's still this brilliant. He's like. 
he's the greatest booker of all time, and I don't see how you could argue otherwise. I can't. Uh, and the, and the, the I am curious, since he does book so long-term, but yet New Japan still is only going with like one- or two-year contracts, if that is eventually going to paint him into a corner. But it hasn't done so thus far. But the thing is, he keeps adapting. That's true. And he adapts so well that... I wasn't that into Jay White until uh, about until the G1. That was when I really was convinced that holy shit, like Jay White is a genius heel wrestler. But like I can why you hear there's a lot of talk about what the original plan was, like how had Kenny Omega not left, right? And just I think that it speaks well to Gato's booking that the story. I think that that's the mark of the great booker is that when you are thrown a curveball, that you can make it work and make your story appear to be seamless. Cause to me, the Jay white story has been so seamless that from a booking standpoint, like from a wrestling standpoint, yes, but from a booking standpoint, I have not missed Kenny Omega in new Japan. I was about to say that is the mark of a great booker is the fact that no Jay white is not the entering wrestler that Kenny Omega is, but he is so much better of a character that I have not missed Kenny Omega. And you got think about uh, last year at the Tokyo Dome with Jay White beating Okada in 14 minutes, mm-hmm. and just the win after win after win after win after win. And somebody pointed out, I think it was uh, Voices of Wrestling on Twitter when he was coming out for the Naito match that this is what all of those quick Jay White wins. This is for what it was for. And just oh, so that match, the match that Jay White had with Tetsuya Naito on night one of the Tokyo Dome, I feel like it's going to be overlooked a lot because it's between literally two of the greatest matches of all time. <laughs> right. <laughs> That the fact that they had to follow Will Ospreay and Hiromu Takahashi in that insane match, like the greatest junior heavyweight championship match in the history of the Tokyo Dome, that they had to follow that match, and I'm like, okay, we're gonna see why Jay White is the best working heel in the business, and they they followed it by having a completely different match, and yeah, it's because Jay White is such a genius heel. They had such a great match, and White was such a prick, and they were so great at just making people were so upset at the idea that white might actually win this thing and ruin their Naito story. Cause people wanted, people have been wanting for years that Naito win. Uh, just Jay white is great. He is, he is unrepentantly evil and I love him for it. He's like MJF. The only true heels in the business are Jay white and MJF and Kenta. The three guys who don't give a fuck about how much you hate them. Kenta, MJF and Jay white. Um, I think there's a couple other people who are not quite as good as them, but are at that level. Because the the guy who is in the dynasty with MGF, Richard Holiday, I think it is. He's and, so yeah, and then I also like War Beast or Contra Unit in MLW. I think they are the great um, Stan Hansen, Bruiser Brody, Monster Heel. You know, yes. different kind of thing. But no, it, this is a great time. And I've said this before on, on our wrestling focus podcast. This is a great time to be a wrestling fan because there is so much good stuff out there right now. Oh man. It's so good. And the, uh, Kota Ibushi, like I realized I, I, I was going back and forth on the, okay, what are they doing with this, uh, double gold dash thing? I realized like the morning of the, the first dome and I'm like, 
oh fuck, Ibushi's losing twice because that's the story. <laughs> yeah. But it, oh, the Okada match was so fucking incredible, and just the way that toward the end, like Ibushi just goes completely blank, and he's just in this psychotic mode and there's a, he's just, his soul is dying and he's just throwing everything and he throws a V trigger in the desperation and all oh, the emotion. And then just, Oh, and Okada is so good. Okada is so great at being the greatest of all time. Yes. That like, you can't even be mad at Okada for winning because he deserved to win because he's the greatest because he's still the greatest. And it's, just, but it's just so heartbreaking for Ibushi to lose. And then the second night, the match with Jay white that like, Oh, he gets the mental deterioration of Kota Ibushi over those two nights was spectacular. And then the third at new year dash, him saying like he and Tanahashi are going to like, they're gonna. They challenged uh, Juice Robinson and David Finley for the IWGP Tag Titles, which I think is a really great thing for. Number one, the the heavyweight tag division in Japan needed something, and then like both Tanahashi and Ibushi need something else to do for a little while. Sure. Uh, and I would also I would also be a proponent of maybe like like uh, uh, Okada and Will going for the heavyweight tag titles or. You know, like uh, Goto and Ishii, because a division really needs something. But, but I I know that a year from now or two years from now at the Tokyo Dome, we are going to be watching the Kota Ibushi story play out, and uh, it's it's going to be incredible. And I oh. hope it, it it's a little more suspect because of that story to culminate really needs Kenny Omega. And that's the one reason, the only reason that selfishly I want AEW and New Japan to work together is because my heart needs the resolution of the Omega and Ibushi story. No, I completely agree. And But I mean, I think that the storyline is open now, especially after Wrestle Kingdom, where you can get the culmination of the Kota Ibushi story with him finally overcoming Okada. He or has to Okada. Yeah. Or if they make out, you know, that working relationship with AEW work, it can be him... Actually, it needs to be him beating Okada and then being challenged by Omega is how that needs to happen. But we'll see what happens. But I think that they will come to a working agreement with AEW. If not, uh, I don't know whose fault it will be, but I would suspect that it would be somebody on the AEW side, considering those guys apparently also have hurt feelings. Yeah, man, you know, I like those guys, and I defend them a lot, but it, that's, that's a little fucking soft, man. You you have a terrible angle, and the first time you get, like, real criticism, you, you delete Twitter. It's, and, and I like those guys, and I don't want to shit on them, but that's a little fucking weak. Yes, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I can see it would be very difficult to try and run a business, especially if you have never really run one before, and then also keep a presence on Twitter. Yeah, and I, I, I get it. You know, whatever. It, the the show, I think, I think they understood that uh, fans who desperately want them to succeed genuinely didn't like the direction that the company was going. 
Yeah. And I think that if you watch the, the New Year's show, they are, it, it was a step in the right direction, especially now that, and people, people smarter than me have said it, that it has been a big mistake for Cody and Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks to use themselves to try to get other talents over without first establishing themselves as the stars on national TV. So I think that over the next year, over the next few years, you really need to give it about three years where you really drive home that uh, Cody and Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks are like the four pillars of heaven in this promotion. Yeah. That, that then once you're over to a national audience, then you can use your clout to make new stars. Well, and, and other people have said this too, um, but they have too many people that they're trying to build simultaneously. And I like the fact that they have that uh, dynamite on um, YouTube, but you really need to have more of your talking on the nationwide televised program, as opposed to the free thing that you can get on YouTube. Um, because I'm all about wrestling matches, but fuck, you know, <laughs> and I keep up with indie stuff pretty well, but they they got people that I've only tangentially heard of, and to the new audience who's turning in because this is the new hot thing has no idea. I thought it was super cool when the Butcher and the Blade showed up, but who the fuck are they? They didn't do a good job explaining You that. know, it took me like... It was like two weeks before I realized that uh, one of those guys, the blade, is Pepper Parks. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't like he's married to Allie. How did I not put that together? <laughs> so that's how I'm not. And, and I kind of like them because they're like they are a weird. They're like an old school throwback team. They are some weird looking dudes with a persona. Oh, Andy Williams is you know, the butcher is so <laughs> out of 1980s WWE that it's fantastic. Jim, uh, AEW has a lot going for it, and they have some guys who I really think with the right push on national TV can be big stars, man. Darby Allen, fuck, yep. like, <laughs> I knew just over the course of listening to uh, to Jim Cornette's AEW reviews that, like, there was a point that, like, Darby Allen had gotten over with Jim Cornette despite <laughs> being, quote, one of these skateboard fucks. Yeah. Because he's just... And I do like I was watching Darby Allen in Evolve. Like I think I actually might have been at his first Evolve match. Hmm. And like I always thought, like you know, this guy's pretty. But I've seen him more since he's been in AEW that he really has something, and he is a guy who can get over. And just I think I would another reason that I wish the AEW New Japan relationship would would get better is that like that is a guy who I think would benefit so much from working the super junior. Well, they need to come up with a, a partnership with somebody so that they can send some of these people to get more matches. That's why and, like, uh, like uh big swole. Like, yeah. I think she's really got something, but like, I think she needs to go to Japan for like four months. Well, Britt Baker too, man. I mean, she needs so much more ring time. She is, but uh, it's hard with her because she has her. You know, she's a dentist. I hear. Um, now I hadn't heard that. That's completely clearly out of left field. And, and, and she's uh, she's Adam Cole's girlfriend. Well, did you realize? Uh, did you know Big Swole is uh, Cedric Alexander's wife? I did not know that. I read that in the Observer uh, the other week. 
and I, I didn't realize it. I think, uh, fuck, she's somebody's wife. I think it was Sergio Linder. But, like, I, I think she's got something in, uh, Chris Detlander, man. And I think she really speaks well to how adaptive AEW has been at, like, changing their booking because somebody got over. She was so good. I hadn't seen her before. She was in that first televised match, and I was really impressed by her. See, I saw her, I saw her on Dark, you know, a couple of weeks before, but, yeah, it's, uh, I, like I, I hope she wins the title this week. I really, I'm sorry, Riho doesn't do uh, it for me. No, me either. She's too. I mean, I don't want to sound like Jim Cornette here, but she's too small. She's 98 pounds. Like yeah. you can't be the world champion and like be throwing offense that like couldn't break an egg. Yeah. So yeah, I. Chris Statlander is so good. People, are, oh, she's an alien. You know what? I can believe this is professional wrestling. I can believe that there's this woman who's a great athlete and she's a little test in the head and she thinks she's an alien. Like I can completely accept that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I can also accept that like she's pretending that she thinks she's an alien to fuck with people and it's working. It's great. So uh, yeah, I'm all in on Chris Statlander and I hope she wins the title. <laughs> the same people who are bitching about her being an alien say the undertaker is the best gimmick ever. Not that the undertaker is not the best gimmick ever, but it's equally as stupid. Dude, Chris Statlander is great. Yes. Man, we uh we got to get back to uh, podcasting about some wrestling soon, right? It's, it's we clear. certainly do. We certainly do. As a matter of fact, I think I'm going to go ahead and sign off this, and then if you'll stay on the line, we'll talk about that. Um, tell us where we can find you online, Trey. Okay. So here's the thing. I keep getting banned from Twitter because fascists hate me or whatever. Uh, the first time I, I got banned. a shirt that says that. <laughs> Yeah, the the first time that I got banned was because I called Dinesh D'Souza a piece of shit, and I said that I wished that hell existed because he deserves to go there. And uh, then my second account, the the Ad Outlaw History account, got banned, and it was because they said it was like a duplicate account. But suspiciously, I got banned like right after I posted a tweet thread explaining how the Sons of Confederate Veterans were a white supremacist organization. So, yeah. anyway. Uh, if you want to find me on Twitter at this point, I'm at Outlaw Redux. And, uh, yeah, find me there. Find me at uh, outlawhistorian.net. Uh, you can find a way to get in contact with me. I'm not that hard to find. Yeah, and what I'm going to do um, is ask you to send me links to all those and also your TED Talks so that I can put them in the show notes for when I post yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for sitting around and listening to another episode of evoking history if wrestling is not your thing i appreciate you sitting through the last 15 minutes to do your thing find us at the omg podcast and we get that back up and thank you for listening